for your word. I pray that you'll be with me as I um, speak your words this evening. Help me to do it clearly. And I pray that as we hear you speak to us this evening, that we'll respond in the right way as your people here this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we finished at the end of chapter 2 with the people crying out to God. Verse 23, during the long period the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery, because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard them. He heard their groaning and remembered the covenant that, covenant that he made with Abraham. He reaffirms his promise and now in chapter 3 we see how God would bring about that deliverance. But we know that the deliverer will be Moses, that he's been prepared for this task and it comes as no surprise that it isn't Moses who appears before God at the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness where he came to the mountain of God. And the Lord appeared to him. And Moses sees this bush and he sees the holiness of God. And God speaks to Moses. And in verse 7 through to verse 10, we see the call of Moses that God places on him. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned of their slave drivers. Sorry, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of all those different people. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But as we work through the rest of this chapter, we'll see all the excuses that Moses brings up, giving the reasons why he is not the one. Why he is not the person to be going to deliver his people. But he's missed straight off the bat what God has said. Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them. It is God who does the rescuing. He's using Moses to bring that about. So the rest of this chapter, in um, chapter 4, verse 1 to 17, we'll see this conversation between Moses and God and how Moses is bringing about these objections and these reasons why he's not the one to go to rescue the Israelites. And as I was preparing for this, it seems so relevant for us today. The excuses that we come up with not to serve as God wants us to. Well, as we'll see in these verses, that what God wants from Moses is for him to answer the call in faith and obedience. So let's look at the first objection. Verse 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I to go and do that? 
I'm not good enough for this job. And then we see God's reply in verse 12, I will be with you and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. You see, in God's response, he doesn't deny Moses' inadequacy. What he wants from Moses is for him to refocus himself from himself to God. It's, it's a totally different response to the way that we would probably respond. And I've done this many times myself. You know, when somebody asks you, a friend or a colleague comes to you and says, I'm not up to this task. Whatever the task is. And our reply, or my reply, immediately is, of course you are. Go for it. Of course you're up to the task. I've done it plenty of times. But that's not the way that the Lord replies to Moses here and to us. When Moses says to God, Lord, I'm not adequate for the task, God says, no, you're not. But I am. He knows Moses is not up for the job. But with the promise that I am, I will be with you as you do or as you fulfill this calling. And this great truth that God will be with Moses will be confirmed when later on, when they are delivered from Egypt and they stand at the mountain and worship God. God promises that his presence will be with them, but he also points forward to the point when the job will be done. And that's the challenge for us. It's for us not to focus on ourselves, on our own inadequacies. But when we're called by God to serve in whatever way or whatever area that he calls us to, that we don't respond as Moses does by saying, who am I? But what we need to do is remind ourselves of who is with us. I will be with you. So that's Moses' first objection. God answers that. And then we, we see the second um, excuse in verse 13. <coughs> Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? This second response of Moses is to do with his lack of knowledge. He wants to know what to tell the Israelites. And if you remember back um, earlier on in Exodus, when Moses tried to deliver the Israelites and failed, who are you? Who, who are you that we are to listen to you? He's a failed leader. He's a murderer in exile tending to the sheep. Why should they listen to me? He's a failure. And we can relate to that. 
Why should anyone listen to me? I've failed. I've messed up. I don't have the right to say anything. Never mind expect people to listen. So Moses asks God to reveal his name. And then comes the answer in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. We looked at this a few weeks ago in our Knowing God series. And we saw that this God, the I am, is. That he is. We saw that he's always been. We saw that he was there before the universe. He's totally independent of anything. Everything that was made is dependent upon him. There is nothing in the whole universe that compares to God. He never changes. And whatever he does, he's always right. That's who's sending you, Moses. The one who never changes. The one who is. The one who's sending you is the one who is the same throughout the generations. Verse 15, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And the same God that Abraham knew, that Isaac knew, that Jacob knew, and that you know, hundreds of years has passed. Yet it's the same God. It's the same God who cares for his people. Verse 16, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I've watched over you. I've visited you. I've seen what's gone on. And I will come to the aid of my people. He's the one who's seen and heard their suffering. And he's the one who's promised to bring them out, to rescue them and take them into the promised land. Verse 17, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then in verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. The God who's sending you is a God who knows. He knows how people will respond. And he's a God of power. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Having given Pharaoh the opportunity to repent, then the Lord stretches out his mighty hand and lets and rescues his people. This is the God who has power over even what seems to them the greatest power around. And he doesn't just bring them out and take them to a place, but he richly blesses them. And I will make the Egyptians, verse 21, favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and, every, and any man, any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing 
which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. You see, we see in this section, it's God's ability, who he is, that will deliver Israel, not Moses. Let me see the third objection to this call that God has placed on him. Chapter 4. Moses answered, what if, you do not be- what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? As we begin this chapter, we've got to take a second glance to make sure that we're reading it properly. Because in verse 18 of chapter 3, God has just told Moses, the elders of Israel will listen to you. And now he's saying, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? It's an amazing question and excuse from Moses. And you wonder what's going on. It reminded me of my children when they come to me with something that's on their mind and they've asked me a question and I'm explaining it to them. But they're not listening to a thing I'm saying. They're just focusing on their own issue. And I wonder whether that's what's going on with Moses. He's not really taking in what God's saying to him. He's just focused on himself and his own issues. His problem is that he's worried that he'll be ineffective because of his credibility. No one's going to believe a word I say. Well, the Lord once again answers Moses. And he gives him three signs. Three signs that point to something else. The first one in verse 2 to 5 is this staff. God tells him to throw it on the ground. It turns into a snake. And he tells him to pick it up. Then the Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. It's an amazing thing for Moses to see. This staff turned into a snake, which was the sign the Egyptians had on their crowns to show their their power and authority to their enemies. And God says, go and grab it by the tail, which is absolutely bonkers because that's where you don't want to grab it because it's leaving its head free to come and attack you. But what God is showing Moses in this first sign, that he has power even over someone like the Egyptians. Then we see the second one. Verse 6. Then the Lord said, put your hand in your side cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Again, another amazing sign showing the power of this God who is sending Moses out to deliver the Israelites. And then verse 8 and 9, the Lord said, if if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second one. If they do not believe these two signs, 
or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. These three signs were designed to make it clear that God is supreme over Egypt. His power and his authority. His staff would later devour the snakes of the magicians. The leprosy on his hand showed that God could instantly heal this disease that was common in Egypt and incurable. And God tells him to put it in his hand and pull it out and it's gone. And the Nile was a symbol of Egypt's fertility. Its life is blood in the hands of God. They worshipped the Nile as a God. That God in an instant could change it to blood. The message is clear. God is mighty and powerful over all things. And that should have been great comfort to Moses as he was to go to Egypt to bring out his people. The fourth question, or the fourth objection that Moses brings in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongues. Here Moses is saying that he can't go to deliver the people because he's incompetent for the job. He just hasn't got what it takes. And I don't know if you noticed how he addresses the Lord. He's not in capitals. So whether he's not got the right perspective of God, he's not seen the full picture of who God is. He's saying he's not eloquent. And even in this time that I've been speaking to you, Lord, I'm still not eloquent. You know, it reminded me of the garden when Adam said to God, you were the one who put this woman here. It's your fault. And that's what it sounds like he's saying. I've never been eloquent. And even when I've been speaking to you, I'm still not eloquent. Moses' problem wasn't his eloquence of speech. His problem more, was more of an obedience problem. God had given Moses a clear task, a clear calling, but rather than trusting God, he made excuses. You see, it didn't really matter how articulate Moses was because God had already told him what to say. Not only to Israel, but also to Pharaoh. He may have had a problem with public speaking. He may not have been eloquent. But he could speak. 
And God had told him what to say. And we've seen that recently in our studies of 1 Corinthians. Paul didn't take the message with eloquence. But all he did was preach the gospel. And what's God's reply? The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God reminds him that I'm the one who made all things. I'm the one who created you. And once again, after reminding him of that, God says, I will be with you. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. And again, we see Moses focusing in the wrong direction. I have never been eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. And then we see in verse 12, I will help you, God says, and I will teach you what to say. It's a reminder to Moses to focus on the one who will be with him. The one who has called him to this task. It's not about the message. It's not about the messenger, but about the message. And again, I think we can see ourselves in Moses' response here. I think about all the times that I've been in situations where I've been praying for opportunities and then God has given us those opportunities and my heart's beating out of my chest and my hands are sweating. I'm just thinking in my head, how shall I phrase what I'm going to say? And then the opportunity has gone. I bottled it. I didn't take the chance to share the gospel with these people. I have in mind the excuse that Moses has. I'm not eloquent enough. There's better people than me who can say it far more clearly of what God has done for them through Jesus. But God says that's no excuse. I will be with you. I will help you. I will help you speak. And I will help you. And I will teach you what to say. And I, as I was thinking about this, how it's not the eloquence of the messenger, but the contents of the message, um, I read the story of Charles Spurgeon becoming a Christian. How one day he was off to, to church, but there was this snowstorm, so he decided to nip to the closest Methodist church. And as he sat down, the normal preacher wasn't there because of the storm. So this very thin-looking man went up to the pulpit. And Spurgeon <laughs> says to this man that it was obvious that he had no teaching in how to preach and called him really stupid which was nice and polite. Um, but his text was, Isaiah 45, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he stretched it out for 10 minutes, this very thin-looking, stupid man who was trying to preach that verse. And he stopped and looked out into the congregation and looked directly 
at Spurgeon. And he said to him, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a Methodist could do, young man, look to Christ Jesus. Look, look, look. You had nothing to do but look and live. And then he says, I saw at once the way of salvation. It is a great story and fits in perfectly with this excuse of Moses. It's not about how poorly delivered the message was, how it was thrown together on the spot, and how Spurgeon called him stupid. But he preached Christ as the only hope of salvation for sinners. And that's what was pressed on Spurgeon's mind, on his conscience. You see, it's not about our eloquence. It's not about how well we can share the gospel, although we should work at sharing it as best we can. What matters is what we say, that we're pointing people to Jesus, the only one, who brings about salvation. And finally, the fifth objection. Verse 13, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. He's no more excuses. He's nothing else to say just to plead with God. Please send someone else. At the start of this, in verse um, 4 of chapter 3, Moses said, here I am, when God called him. But the more he understood about what God was asking him to do, the more reluctant he became, until all he could do was just refuse to go. Send someone else, anyone, send whoever you want, as long as it's not me. And God's reply, verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, that's quite a frightening verse in one sense, that God's anger burned against Moses and we'll hear more about that later on in Exodus, but again we see God's gracious patience with Moses. What about your brother Aaron the Levite, I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if I were your mouth and as if you were God to him. God in his grace provides Aaron for Moses. It was still... God who would give them both the words to speak and it was still God, it was still Moses who God called to do this task. But God graciously provided Aaron to help Moses. And then finally verse 17, but take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. God didn't take no for an answer anyway. 
in the end, after all his questions, all his objections, Moses did what God called him to do. By God's authority and with God's assistance, he went to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. Moses was a great leader, as we heard last week, who brought the people out of Egypt to the promised land. But as we work through this and hear his reluctance to answer God's call, it reminded me that there is actually only one perfect rescuer. Through these chapters we've seen the objections of Moses, yet Jesus, even in the garden, trusted God, not my will, but yours. Yes, he agonized over the pains of the cross, but he didn't refuse to endure them. He didn't say, send someone else. If Jesus is our Savior, then we must be ready and willing to serve him through faith and obedience, ready to say, here I am, send me, knowing that he is with us always, knowing who he is, knowing his power over all things, and knowing that he is sufficient even when we are not. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word and we um, thank you for these two chapters in Exodus and as we read them, um, they seem so relevant to our situations. We're so easy to uh, bring excuses why we're not good enough or why we can't do what you've called us to do as we are to go and make disciples of all nations. But we thank you that you are gracious, you are patient, and that you are with us as your people as we seek to do your will here. So Father, help us um, to respond rightly to your word this evening. Help us um, to go from here as faithful, obedient children, for your praise and for your glory. Amen.